American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. Last month, Jerome Powell announced that the Federal Reserve Bank would be moving away from the term transitory inflation. This marked a significant reversal in rhetoric from the newly reappointed Fed chairman, who had been defending the bank's position on quantitative easing for over 18 months at that point. This announcement roughly coincided with news about the highest levels of inflation seen in over 30 years, as well as new plans to cut off the Fed's bond-buying program faster than expected, likely in response to these inflation concerns. Most economic onlookers already knew that heightened inflation was inevitable. You can use all the buzzwords you want, but putting this much money into an economy that is struggling with product availability is going to cause price increases. But how bad is this situation? Has the Fed opened Pandora's box of hyperinflation, or are we still at a point where monetary recovery is possible when things get back to normal? Whatever that means anymore. In the past, I have been pretty critical of some of these policy decisions. At the beginning of this year, I made a video on how reckless money creation could cause inflation in the US. Now, unfortunately, a lot of those predictions came true, but we are not past the point of no return yet. I'd also like to point out that just because I got this one right doesn't mean you should take any predictions I make in the future too seriously. I make a video every two weeks or so, inevitably I'm going to get some things right. But never count on anyone to accurately predict the future, least of all economists. So, instead of going over the same stuff I did in that video, which was more or less a forecast of the future based on historical precedents, I instead want to look at the current inflation situation with the benefit of hindsight. There are quite a few things going on at the moment which have the potential to radically reshape the way the world economy functions. Even in the best case scenario, where everything really does go back to normal, it's still incredibly important to understand these variables, if for no other reason than to be more in tune with policy decisions which will have a very real impact on the way that you live your life. So, how bad is the inflation problem in the US at the moment? Can the Fed fix this problem without destroying the labour market and asset prices? And finally, if this is allowed to continue, what impacts could it have on the global economy? It's getting towards the end of 2021, which means it's time for the Economics Explained annual video covering all of the mistakes that I made this year. In previous years, me and my team used to just write down these errors and release them in the first video of the new year. The point of this video was to set the record straight about things that we get wrong, but also to show that we too are only human and you should never formulate your opinion about a subject based off just one outlet, because no matter how hard they try, they will inevitably make mistakes. However, this year we want to do something a little bit different. You see, we noticed however hard we tried to search for mistakes, we could never hope to be as good as a million or so viewers who have on occasion pointed out some pretty embarrassing mistakes mere seconds after we uploaded a video. Others have written out incredibly detailed comments arguing against certain points or proposing alternative views. Economics is a social science, and just like all sciences, it only works with rigorous peer review. Now of course, that normally means academics having all of their work reviewed by their academic peers, but in our case that means having our work reviewed by pretty much everyone who watches it. So for the Economics Explained Mistakes of 2021, I am turning to you all. I want you all to go out and find all of the mistakes that I have made in every video ever on this channel, from Norway to whatever video we publish at the end of December. These mistakes can be anything from a simple spelling error all the way to fundamentally flawed reasoning in the arguments presented. 
To enter, just download the spreadsheet in the video description below and start filling up with all of the mistakes that you can find. Once done, all you need to do is send in your spreadsheet, which you can easily do by uploading it to our Typeform page, which is also linked in the video description below. Now, don't think we're going to get you to do all of this just to further the scientific process. Come on, this is still economics explained here. So, whoever finds the most genuine errors will win a week's holiday to Australia, where I will also personally take you out for a day sailing around Sydney Harbour. So, if you feel like coming to the land down under, check out the video description and get hunting for those mistakes. This will not be won by someone who just gets lucky. We are not pulling a name out of a hat here. This will be won by whoever does the most work to genuinely make improvements on videos like this one. Inflation is the increase in the price level of goods and services over time, normally monitored using the Consumer Price Index, a bundle of goods that is more or less indicative of the consumption habits of urban individuals. If the goods in that basket become more scarce because, oh I don't know, let's say massive global supply chain issues, then there will be less goods to go around. This means that people that really want or need those goods will need to pay more for them to outbid someone who will be forced to go without. This is called cost push inflation. If more cash is printed, then more people are going to have more disposable income, which they can use to buy these goods. This will give people more financial firepower to pay more for goods and services, and assuming the supply of those goods or services remains the same, their prices will increase. This is called demand pull inflation. A little bit of demand pull inflation is actually a good thing. In fact, the Fed targets a 2% inflation rate because it incentivizes people to consume goods and services rather than hoarding piles of cash. If your money is losing 2% of its value every year, you may as well go out and treat yourself, right? The Fed does not want to see cost push inflation because that normally indicates that the economy is becoming poorer. It might sound shallow and materialistic, but from an economist's point of view, more goods and services make for better living standards, so cost push inflation is a no-no. The one caveat to that is that the Federal Reserve Bank does not have any control over cost push inflation. They can do whatever they want with interest rates and bond buying programs, but if factories need to shut down, ships can't set sail, or freight ports get overwhelmed, then headline interest rates aren't going to do much in the short term to fix this. Fixing cost-push inflation with monetary policy is like, uh, well, pushing a rope up a hill. For most of this year, the Fed has pinned higher than expected inflation rates on cost-push inflation. They have cited all of the issues that we've been exploring here on this channel, and for the most part, they are actually correct. Recent inflation as measured by the CPI has mostly been caused by production issues. All of the factors we mentioned are basically what the Fed has been pointing to as the cause of price increases in certain product markets. Fresh food, automobile, gas and computer parts amongst the main culprits. These are all items that don't have particularly sticky prices. Sticky pricing is the tendency for products to maintain their price in the short term, medium term, despite what the wider market is doing. There are a number of reasons this happens, but it's more common amongst certain consumer goods. Things like brand new cars tend to put a lot of money into advertising. If General Motors spent $20 million on an ad campaign promoting their new Chevy Equinox for $29,990, then they are more or less committed to selling it at that price for the immediate future. Now, before anyone corrects me, I know, some dealerships have been adding additional markups to brand new vehicles, but that's rare, and even if it does happen, it's a sign of the crazy world that we live in at the moment. Another example of items with sticky pricing are things that you might have purchased from Dollar Tree. Historically, these have probably been the stickiest of all prices because the pricing is right there in the company's name. 
But even they are not immune from cost push inflation, and they have recently had to raise their prices by 25% in order to remain profitable, a decision I'm sure would not have been made lightly. On the other end of the sticky price spectrum, we have things that don't have anything tying a price to them. A used car, for example, is within reason going to sell for an amount determined between an individual buyer and seller. If the seller sees that new cars are hard to buy and people are paying more for second-hand vehicles, they're going to want more for their car. Pretty simple, but still ultimately caused by supply-side issues. Other things like groceries also tend to be unsticky because people accept that there are fluctuations in the price of produce. Alright, so if inflation has just been caused by supply chain issues, has all of the money printing done anything? Well, yes. Demand pull inflation has actually had huge impacts on prices, just not on the markets that are tracked by the CPI. The CPI is an index of consumer purchases. It's meant to track how much we spend on items that we buy and use up. Because of this, certain markets are entirely omitted. The stock market is perhaps the most obvious example. Despite all of the issues around supply and labour shortages, the S&P 500 is at its highest level ever. It's up roughly 50% from its pre-pandemic level and 100% from the sell-off that was experienced in early 2020. Sure, there are some companies, primarily tech and pharmaceutical companies, that have done well for themselves during the pandemic, but other companies have had their entire function basically put on hold. There are therefore two major forces that have been pushing up stock prices. The first is the lack of alternatives. Historically in uncertain markets like these, investors would move their money into bonds, which pay less but are a lot less risky. The problem is that interest rates are currently so low that for traditional investors this asset class just won't cut it. This has meant that investors are begrudgingly needing to pay a higher price to buy stock in companies that are in many instances making less profit. The second factor is the abundance of capital flooding these markets. The Fed has been buying up corporate bonds which puts money directly into the hands of businesses and their owners. The goal of this bond buying program was to make sure the businesses had enough capital on hand to survive the shutdowns caused by the pandemic, and it did that. It also put a lot of money into the hands of individuals and organisations that had nothing better to do than to reinvest it. The shopping spree of the wealthy has not been contained just within the stock market either. Everything from cryptocurrencies to luxury watches have experienced significant price inflation. Basically, if it's something a rich person would buy, it's probably appreciated in value in the last 18 months. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole rich getting richer argument, at least for this video, it's kind of beside the point. We are just concerned with inflation as it impacts regular people and the broader economy. If a bunch of rich guys want to talk about how much their doggy coins, primate-based JPEGs and gold watches are worth, let them have their fun. That's not really impacting anyone else directly. Where this is causing pain, though, is in housing. Housing has always been at this weird intersection between a human right and an asset class, two roles that are fundamentally at odds with one another. Investors obviously want their properties to appreciate in value and they want to get the most possible rent they can out of them while they have them. Regular people want a place to live which is affordable. House prices have increased dramatically during the pandemic, pushed along by cheap interest rates and investors looking to park their money somewhere. House prices are not directly counted in the consumer price index despite it being the largest expense for almost every family in every advanced country in the world. Rental prices are included, but they are often quite different from the price to purchase a home. With today's interest rates, most families would pay more in rent than they would pay in a mortgage on a house that they own. A stock market at an all-time high could be written off as a bit of investing exuberance fueled by low interest rates. 
Those investors getting richer doesn't necessarily mean anybody else is getting poorer, but property prices soaring by 20 to 30% in a year is threatening to further widen the massive wealth gap between homeowners and renters. It's not a huge deal if someone can't afford a healthy stock portfolio. It is a huge deal when someone can't afford a house. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. There are other ways that these overinflated asset markets could affect regular people as well. The US household saving rate spiked in early 2020 and again in early 2021. This was caused primarily by households putting aside more of their paycheck out of fear that they might lose their job in the pandemic. It was further assisted by government stimulus measures and a lack of spending opportunities during lockdowns. Since the beginning of this year, the savings rate has fallen back to around its long-run average of 7%. For regular households, this was because they were less worried about what the future might hold and simply because they kind of needed to spend their pandemic savings once government assistance dried up. The story is a little bit different for more affluent households, though. A record number of people have retired during the pandemic. There were two big reasons for this. The first was that a lot of people approaching retirement age did not feel like returning back to a job where they would be exposed to a disease which has been disproportionately killing people over 50. The second reason was that they could. A heightened savings rate combined with one of the most intense market rallies in history has meant that people built up their nest eggs a little bit faster than they might have expected. I know it's just a personal example, but my own father retired last year. He was planning to work for another four or five years, but during the first round of lockdowns here in Australia, his company started making people redundant. He volunteered himself for redundancy instead of his younger colleagues, collected a nice fat payout, and has spent most of his days playing with model aeroplanes ever since. I mean, good work, Mr Economics Man Senior, but you might be part of a bigger problem. The Fed has a dual mandate. Its first job is to maintain stable prices. Its second job is to keep unemployment as low as reasonably possible. This is actually quite a delicate balancing act because if unemployment gets too low, it will actually cause inflation as people start demanding higher and higher wages. We explored this in our video on the great labour shortage crisis. The good news for the Fed at least is that unemployment is back down to almost where it was before the pandemic, just over 4%. But that's just half the story. What is potentially of greater concern is the employment rate. If I told you the unemployment rate in the US was 4.2% in November, what would you say the employment rate would be? 95.8%. Sounds reasonable enough. But it's actually only 59%. The employment rate tracks the number of people who have a job as a proportion of the working age population. The unemployment rate tracks the number of people who are out of work and are currently looking for a new job. 
The remaining 41% in the employment rate is made up partially of unemployed people, but it also includes stay-at-home parents, people with disabilities that preclude them from working, people that have retired before the age of 64, as well as people who are independently wealthy and support their lifestyle with investment income rather than labour income. This rate has been in decline for decades, after it peaked in the late 1990s. This decades-long decline has been caused by an ageing population. Just because the working age caps out at 64 doesn't mean that people always wait until that age to retire. People in their 50s are much more likely to take an early retirement over people in their 30s. Another factor has been people studying for a longer time, often not getting a job until they graduate in their early 20s. These factors explain the general trend, but there are some more pronounced downturns. There was another drop following the crash of 2008, and then another more severe drop in 2020. While unemployment has recovered from the fallout of the coronavirus, employment has not. This means that there are simply more working age people that are choosing not to work. Now, the typical headlines of businesses struggling to find entry-level employees probably isn't the biggest issue here. If anything, that's probably a force for good to give unskilled workers the negotiating power they have been severely lacking over the past five decades. Besides, for better or worse, that is probably a short-term problem which will sort itself out over time. The real long-term issue here might very well be those early retirees. People at the end of their career in developed service-based economies like the US tend to be more productive than their junior counterparts. By productive, I mean their ability to create value in the role they are normally assigned. Sure, a 20-year-old labourer might be more productive than a 60-year-old labourer, but a 60-year-old senior manager is going to bring experience, expertise and connections that are just much more productive than a 20-year-old graduate. People are often quick to discount workers over 50. Sure, there are the old jokes that they might not know how to use the printer, but on average, they are going to be better at their jobs than someone with a quarter of their experience. Again, I'll use the example of my father. He was a supply chain engineer for one of the biggest companies in the world. His day job for two decades was overseeing and managing a global supply network, a skill set that would probably come in handy right now. But because economic conditions made it possible for him to exit the workforce sooner than expected, he is not lending that experience to help alleviate the current issues the world is facing. He is hanging out in his garage having a grand old time. But why am I harping on about employment metrics in a video that is supposed to be about inflation? Well, losing workers, especially highly experienced workers during the recovery from this pandemic, is putting the Fed in a very difficult position. Low labour force participation and low unemployment will further drive up demand pull inflation due to higher wages being paid to attract what labour is left. Not enough workers will also mean businesses won't be able to run at full capacity, meaning the outputs of goods and services will be limited. This causes cost push inflation. So, raise interest rates, right? Well, that's not the silver bullet, unfortunately. Doing that would depress asset markets, which would in turn mean that a lot of those new retirees would be forced back into the workforce. This would also slow down the recovery of industries that were hit particularly hard by the pandemic. The last thing the Fed wants is to undo all of their hard work by imposing higher rates on an economy that is still dealing with an ongoing health crisis. While raising interest rates is the correct thing to do from an inflationary point of view, the Fed still operates for the benefit of the people. At the moment, forcing retirees back to work in crashing asset markets would probably cause more pain than even double-digit inflation in certain markets. Which begs probably the most important question amongst all of this. How bad will this inflation get? It's naive to assume that the US is immune from hyperinflation. 
Its currency status as the world reserve does make it significantly stronger than other less widely recognised currencies, but it's still not invincible. If inflation is allowed to rise into double digits for any more than a year or two, it would radically compromise the US dollar's position as the world reserve. Nobody wants to do business in a currency that is falling like a rock. Again, if you want doom and gloom, go and watch my video from the beginning of this year. But there are a few important things to point out before you start collecting bottle caps in anticipation for the collapse of the US banking system. The first thing is that, yes, inflation is high right now, extremely high by modern US standards. But if this really does only last two years, then that's actually a good thing. The Fed wants a 2% inflation rate, and sure, it's massively off target at the moment, but it wasn't exactly on target before 2020 either. Since the GFC, the inflation rate has been consistently under the 2% target rate, which is part of the reason why the Fed took so long to start increasing interest rates in the 2010s. If this period of high inflation really is temporary, then it could act as somewhat of a catch-up period for the Fed, which means that they could introduce higher interest rates in a year or two without risk of pushing the economy into a deflationary spiral, which could cause just as many problems as a high sustained rate of inflation. The other thing I have to clear up is the money printer meme. I'm sure all of you have seen this graph in recent months, a chart tracking the money supply of American dollars. This rather concerning looking spike here started right as stimulus measures were put in place to combat the pandemic. Well, this was actually a bit of really unfortunate timing. You see, the M1 money supply would historically track money in the form of physical cash and cash kept in checking accounts of businesses and individuals. In May of 2020, the Fed decided to also include cash kept in bank savings accounts, which for most regular people was the majority of their money. I, for example, keep my emergency fund in a savings account and I only ever keep enough money in my checking account to pay rent and pay off my credit card at the end of the month. I'd imagine most of you have a pretty similar arrangement. The decision to include savings account was the real reason this chart went vertical, not money printing. For those of you competing in the Economics Explained Mistakes of 2021 competition, uh, I have displayed this graph a few times this year without properly explaining it, so there are definitely a few points out there to put you slightly closer to that trip down here to Sydney. The real graph looks more like this, which to clarify is still pretty bad. That's still almost a 50% increase in the total money supply since the start of the pandemic, but it's not Armageddon just yet. So. Does that mean that we should stop worrying? Uh, no. We're still not in a good place. Unfortunately, we are living through one of the most devastating events in modern history. More Americans have died of COVID than died in both world wars combined. It is naive of us to think that there will not be lasting implications on our way of life. Printing more money while relying on less people to actually add value to the economy is only ever going to have one outcome. All the technicalities and media spin in the world is not going to fix this reality. Now remember, if you have spotted any mistakes in this video, feel free to write a comment about it below, but also make sure to start entering it into the spreadsheet template listed in the video description. If you want a cheeky pro tip, go back to watch the videos that we made highlighting the mistakes that we made in 2019 and 2020. You are welcome to use them, so that should give you a head start of a few dozen mistakes or so. A quick reminder is that this competition applies to all videos that this channel has ever made, so I'm sure there'll be plenty of slip-ups out there. Happy hunting. Thanks for watching, mate. Bye.